0: it's the Clark and Ryan show hey Clark hey Ryan
1: first of all we wanted to announce the winner of our 1995 Clark and Ryan show giveaway Ryan Gosling congratulations and thanks for your support and now a
0: message from our favorite sponsor station 109.1 this is- Welcome to the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast, where we will nerd out over the shows, movies, books, games, and more that made us who we are today. Prepare yourself for a return to the 1990s on the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. As always, we have some exciting new content on our Patreon page. Just this past week, we released our third behind the scenes episode where we talk a little bit about more of the episodes we have coming up. And then we also released our retrospective episode three, which was all about our N64 episode. Definitely check those out on our Patreon for some thoughts about previous episodes and what we have coming up.
1: Learn about my thoughts on my new card game obsession, Marvel Snap and check out all my life updates from my amazing Christmas vacation on the Discord.
0: Also, check out my continuing obsession with Shining Force as I play through more of Shining Force 2 and also Shining Force 1 and discuss that both on the Patreon posts page and in the Discord. And
1: we hope you love our episode covering Station 109.1.
0: Welcome back to the
1: Midnight Society. We have returned for another episode
0: of Are You Afraid of the Dark? If you listened to our last episode, in which we covered the tale of the Midnight Madness and the tale of the Pinball Wizard, you would have heard at the very end that there was a third episode that was slated to be covered, but we ran out of time, so... Here we finally return to The Tale of Station 109.1. This is a star-studded episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? in which we will see characters portrayed by a young Ryan Gosling and a somewhat young Gilbert Gottfried. Before we get into that, I would like to set the stage, as I often do. This particular episode took place in 1995 To be precise, it was November the 11th. And this is fascinating for us because as we are recording, of course this will not be when it releases, but at the time of recording, it is in fact November the 10th. So in just a few hours, we will be tipping over to the same exact date that this was released. Now before we get to our our first scene of the episode, I just wanted to throw in my two cents about my nostalgia with this particular one. This was one that I 100% saw back in the day when I was a kid. It was on a lot in reruns, and at the time, I didn't really have any clue who Ryan Gosling was because at that point, he really wasn't any different than the other actors you would see in an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. But Gilbert Gottfried, of course, we all knew. I had heard his voice many times because Aladdin is one of my favorite Disney movies, and of course, he portrays the parrot Iago in and it was kind of strange as a kid to realize oh this guy is an actual person he's not just a voice of a parrot he is in fact a man with also a very strange voice but he was a real person and it was interesting to see him in a role in an are you afraid of the dark episode and as much as someone for me who was eight years old at the time could understand Kind of seemed like a big deal that he was on a Nickelodeon
1: show. So for this one, yeah, I, I don't have nostalgia. I didn't see it. I didn't hear about it. Looking at the captions, it says, The Tale of Station 109.1 featuring Ryan Gosling. So that that's what perked my ears. I got a lot to say about that later on in the episode about Ryan Gosling as an actor. But yeah, Gilbert Gottfried was huge too. And the actors here really shine, but... No nostalgia here. I experienced this completely fresh and I'm excited to talk about the different actors here because they really do shine. And it's not just Gilbert Gottfried. It's also Ryan Gosling.
0: Well, that brings us to our midnight society scene. So as you all know, generally these episodes begin with the introduction of whoever the storyteller is and a little bit of a skit at the beginning. And so we will, As we have been, now I will say, if if you had heard some of our earlier Are You Afraid of the Dark episodes, the first or second one, we didn't narrate episodes in there. We just simply went through our observations and talked about the episodes, but starting in our third episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark we actually started narrating through scene by scene, and that seems to be much more effective, especially since a lot of you have not seen these in many years. So hopefully my narration, Paul's clips, and sound grabs that he'll include in the editing help to sort of bring back the idea of the episode and makes it more clear. So this will be the first time that we are covering one episode in... One of our episodes. Only one Are You Afraid of the Dark episode. Uh, We're providing a lot of time to this one. Now, if we go into the first scene, the Midnight Society, we see Stig. He is blindfolded, and he is being brought in for his second try to join the Midnight Society. There was a previous episode called The Tale of the Dead Man's Float, which we have already covered, and at the end of that episode, the society did not vote to let Stig in. Which I think was ridiculous, but that's we already discussed that. So what ends up happening is, this is his second try to get voted in. It has to be a unanimous vote by the whole society. He has with him a radio and he asks all of the members in the Midnight Society to to tune brought radios station. with them as well. Said, Go. And Turn he off. asks them to And they do it all at once, and it creates this cacophony of sound that is completely noise. It's nothing that you can hear, really, what's going on, because all of the stations are playing together. So Stig yells for everyone to turn off their radios and boomboxes because the cacophony of sound is, is too loud. And he tells everyone now to imagine all of these radio signals that were just flying around the space and how they are invisible but they are all around us and he then further says to imagine the static
2: there's no way to tell if maybe hidden somewhere in the static there might be a signal coming from some place we never thought of like maybe beyond the grave
0: something hidden a message that we can't perceive Normally, but that is there, and it is around us. Pretty existential sort of opening, very thought-provoking, this idea of hidden messages in the static.
1: Yeah, so that kind of freaks me out, too, with regard to the frequencies of radio, Wi-Fi, stuff like that, where you got these waves floating around here, and you can't see them, but they exist. It definitely freaked me out a little bit, so I like to kind of cater to that a little bit in terms of the fear on that, because... Yeah, I could see there being the signal of the undead, the afterlife, floating around here. And all you got to do is tune it to the right station, and you can hit that frequency. But I'm not a scientist, so I'm not here to to analyze that. I got to give Stig some credit here. He's coming back here. We did talk about Dead Man's float. What a travesty that was. And to reiterate, again, Stig, he should have made it in. He should have. He's replacing Frank, ostensibly. But he's not the heartthrob, right? He's this nerdy, overweight kid. Doesn't have the physicality of a Frank.
0: Certainly not the the charisma or the machismo of a Frank either. Like he doesn't quite have the the same vibes as a Frank.
1: Not at all, and that's why I think they were so reticent about allowing him in. But the stories are so good, you know. So he's like, "Come on, give me a chance here." So when they play the different radio stations, you know, Stig says player favorite. And I was wondering what your favorite station would be. Obviously not the number, but what kind of stuff would you listen to at that age? What kind of radio music or shows or whatever would you have turned on during this Midnight Society meeting?
0: Well, I mean, I can give you the number because the number is the same uh, that I listen to now, uh, because, uh, you know, the area that I grew up in, I eventually uh, in the past year moved back to and it's 99.7 it is a pop station i am big into pop music uh, as we could discuss i'm also big into a symphonic metal band which is called nightwish which we have not talked about yet but they don't play on the radio that much so talking about radio music 100 percent would be a pop station generally i'm not interested in the other stations that are out there, because they're typically country stations, and I have no interest in that whatsoever. So, I mean, just on the way home today, I had on the pop station, and they have a, a very limited rotation where I feel like they play maybe like the same 30, 40 songs all the time. But it's pretty much the best there is, and and that's what I would have listened to as a kid also. But now I have to turn that back to you. I mean... What's your radio station?
1: Well, again, hearkening back to that age. Nowadays, we have Bluetooth. You know, you can turn on YouTube, Spotify, very explicit things that you like. Back then, yeah, it was basically pop music, what you said, popular music stations or a rock station. Generally, I had a couple phases where I, I did listen to some actual shows. So I had this like the shock jock phase of my life. Where I would listen to Shock Jock in the morning and Shock Jock on my way home from work based on my commute. And then from there, I actually turned to sports talk shows, sports media. And it was called The Fan. I'm sure it's everywhere. But basically, they just talk sports all the time. And they basically had a morning, afternoon, and like rush hour show. But that just got – it was so mind-numbing trying to listen to sports. And I don't really care about sports as much anymore. But it, that, that was too hard to watch. It was just so, like, my brain just melted. So those were my really two phases. But, yeah, nowadays you got six stations up. You have, you know, your soft rock, your hard rock, your pop, etc., all going in there. And, and he, he, again, I, I usually don't listen to the radio now because you have Bluetooth. And But back then, those were the, the main things I listened to.
0: I actually do still listen to the radio, like commuting and... It's because it's simpler, like, than to, like, say, I have an older car, too, so it doesn't have the best, um, like, systems for a lot of that stuff, so I I just flip through the stations, and yeah, nowadays, I mean, sometimes I listen to, like, NPR news, um, and then, yeah, the pop station, if I can get Hard Rock, that would be my ideal, yeah, so Stig, like you had said, he's replacing Frank here, and Frank leaving does take away a piece of the soul of the show for me, because, of course, he is the Dr. Vink storyteller. So now that Frank is gone, there is no more Dr. Vink. (laughs) But that being said, I agree with you that Stig, both of these stories are amazing. Strangely enough, they're the only two he ever tells. He never tells another after this, because this is season five. So moving on from the Midnight Society scene, of course, Stig throws the powder onto the fire.
2: Submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society. I call this story The Tale of Station 109.1.
0: And we get into the actual story. When it starts, it appears as if we are at a funeral home. Some sort of viewing, perhaps. We see flowers. There is the sort of music you would hear at a funeral home that is playing. And eventually we see this is actually the bedroom of our main character, whose name is Chris. And he is laying out as if he's dead. He is posed with his hands on his chest. And it would seem like he's in a funeral home, but it's actually his bedroom. And his mom comes in, says that it's time for dinner, and we see the music being turned off. So apparently Chris has been playing this music in his room on his boombox, and he has been laying himself out as if he is dead. The mom doesn't seem to think this is weird. Now, at the dinner table, things are getting a little bit morbid, we could say, because as the food is being passed around, Chris just keeps making these really creepy comments and saying things like, I wonder
2: if anyone's ever buried alive.
0: And he takes his shrimp, And he buries them inside his mashed potatoes. He makes like a weird cross out of, I don't know if it was carrots or what it was, but he made some sort of cross in his potatoes and put them in. It was really creepy. He starts talking about how you could imagine if you were in the coffin and dirt was being thrown on top of it. And he's doing all of this while his mom and dad and his brother are all at the table. And he's just going off on this weird... Riff about all of this stuff. At one point, the mother says, past the grave, meaning past the gravy. We cut from the scene. It's a very awkward situation where Chris is clearly freaking everybody out. Going back to the potatoes, I have to ask you, what is this thing of pressing the spoon in and then pouring in the gravy? I have seen this before. And to me, it's really unappetizing. I don't play with my food whenever I'm eating it. And then, of course, the shrimp and the cross thing, he takes it to a whole nother level. But what is your thought about the potato divot?
1: I mean, of all the things for you to criticize, that's it. (laughs) That's what you're talking about here. Like, I do the same thing. I don't think that's that weird. You make the divot so the gravy goes inside the potatoes. And then you eventually mix the potatoes. If you just pour the gravy on the potatoes, it cascades on the outer edges of the potatoes and doesn't get inside the potatoes. So that made perfect sense to me that he was doing that.
0: No, man, I was I was actually just joking because because like, <laughs> I, th- I decided to pick the most mundane detail out of the scene to try to pick on it because the whole thing is so bizarre. Like, I, I don't understand like who is this kid and who are his parents and and they're allowing him to just to just spout off all this all this death stuff like and live in a room where he is like essentially recreated a funeral home like what but then so all this is happening but then for some reason we get a close up of someone putting the little divot in the potato and like it's just such a it's such a random shot it just sort of grabbed my attention Like is we have all this insanity, and then they decided to show that little that little mundane detail.
1: Well that was that was set up to develop the buried alive thing with the shrimp. Let's rewind back to the craziness of Chris. And this mom, I mean, she's gotta do something here. What's wrong with him? I mean, he's got something wrong with him. Again, I understand it's for comedic value. You know, he's integrated with the dead, he loves the the dead, he loves the post Mortem X, Y, and Z here, but the mom's got to do something here. And she goes in this room and she just, she's so casual about him. And she points out like any other normal mom would do to pick up his dirty clothes. Like that's what she says. That's her problem is that he has dirty clothes there. It's not the fact that the guy's got candles lit, which is a fire hazard. It's not the fact that he's laying down in a suit, right? A funeral (laughs) suit, which is going to have to be fixed. You know, you have to go go to dry cleaners. You do.
0: I mean, that's going to be expensive. And I mean, he's he's even posed himself as if he's a corpse. It's it's crazy.
1: Yeah. And the flowers, even the flowers. Yeah, Where is he, get, where is he getting the I flowers mean, from? Dude, I mean, <laughs> listen, having been married, right. The flowers. I mean, no, you're talking thousands of dollars for these flowers. that are going to die in a week. Where's he getting the money for that? How is none of that going through her mind?
0: It's funny because we get a very, very brief explanation, like in the next scene, where his brother, who of course is played by Ryan Gosling, his name is Jamie, he makes a comment to somebody that his brother was playing in the graveyard with some of his friends, and apparently that somehow has made him deranged.
2: That's weird. Poor kid. Poor nothing, man, he's deranged.
0: So... We don't get a very clear understanding of what's going on here, but I'm going to have to posit something right here. And so hear me out later on in the episode. We are going to meet a character who is played by the same actor that plays old man Corcoran in a different episode. And in that episode, the whole plot is that there are kids playing hide and seek in a graveyard. And he is like the groundskeeper of the graveyard. So I can't help but wonder if this reference to Chris playing in the graveyard was meant to suggest that he was one of the kids from the previous
1: episode.
0: And then it's just sort of the strange connection that we get that same actor in both episodes.
1: That's interesting. Yeah, it's it's possible that he was one of, you know, maybe in that episode that wasn't isolated, right? He, he maybe did that with other kids. He clearly messed up chris right and it's not just chris though i i feel like the mom's kind of a little messed up too not only her not stepping in here with the room fiasco of the candles and the flowers but that dinner man i mean you're talking potatoes i, I agree with you i think it's a carrot right carrots ham and then shrimp and that's what he dips in the potatoes like why shrimp? Why why does shrimp come into play here? It doesn't seem <laughs> at all to fit the palette of what's going on here.
0: I was wondering the same thing. It seems like a random assortment of foods. I don't know. I mean, let's look at the nutrition here. So we've got the potatoes, right? That's a vegetable. Uh, we have the carrots. That's another vegetable. And of course, with the potatoes, you're getting carbs. Uh, we have the ham. So we have a protein. Where does the shrimp fit in with this? Another protein? That's madness,
1: man. But that's I mean, that's this family, man. It's it's madness setting us up for the craziness that happens in the episode. This meal is just a metaphor for this family and what we're about to experience.
0: Well, we will see that the father is a non character and the mother really is too, beyond that first little bit. Because really we will just be focusing on the two brothers as we move forward. Now in the next scene Chris goes outside, and he has a glass bottle in which he has trapped a bug inside. And he says,
1: I wonder how long you can survive in there.
0: As he sort of shakes the bottle with the bug inside, it's kind of weird and inhumane, to be honest. While he is doing this, we cut over to his brother, Jamie. And he's working on a car with some other guy who is not important, because again, we won't see him in later scenes. But they have this conversation where, and I'm just going to call him Ryan Gosling, where Ryan Gosling tells the other guy that his brother was out playing in the graveyard with his friends and now it has made him deranged. And the guy suggests that maybe he should do something to try to snap his brother out of it. So that brings us right into another brief scene in Chris's bedroom where he was playing on his computer and his brother comes in and says
1: hey uh, what you playing
2: hey man figures
0: gosling then drops the information that he has access to a hearse that has just come into the car lot where he works and chris is more than happy to go with him to check out the hearse so the next part of the scene they're at the hearse and gosling tells his brother that he can go ahead and get in and make himself comfortable. Chris wonders how many bodies have been in here as he is entering into the back of the hearse. As he lays down and is clearly enjoying himself, Gosling goes outside of the car and hooks up using some jumper cables. He hooks up the car so the radio turns on and everything starts going inside the car. It freaks out uh, his brother, Chris, very badly, and he starts yelling f- to be let out. Jamie, let
2: me out of here! Uh, uh, Do you quite uh, the dead? Uh,
0: but Gosling leaves him inside and walks off. Now, as Chris is freaking out, he eventually reaches over and he turns off the car. But the radio continues, and the radio moves itself to the dial of 109.1. And we hear a broadcast coming over.
2: Uh-huh. This is 109.1 Radio for the Dimensionally Challenged.
0: And as Chris is listening to this radio broadcast and it talks about helping people to cross over, we see on the outside of the car an old man suddenly appear and he approaches Gosling and he says,
2: Can you help me find the way home? Sorry, so? <laughs>
0: Gosling just sort of backs off and doesn't want to talk to him, and as he turns away, the man disappears into thin air. This is the guy I mentioned before who plays Old Man Corcoran, and he also was in the episode The Tale of the Hungry Hounds, which we covered previously as well as the stablekeeper. That basically puts an end to the scene in the car. There's a lot happening here. What do you think about Gosling's plan to snap Chris out of his demented state?
1: Gosling here is especially interesting. And I say this because at a young age, Gosling here is, again, he's trying to demonstrate with nonverbal communication what his plan is. And it was very interesting to me. So my introduction to Ryan Gosling was actually the first movie I ever saw before Notebook with him was Half Nelson. And it's a story about a teacher in an inner city and basically he has his own demons, his own problems, and he's trying to connect with another student in the inner city. A lot of drug use basically. And it's a movie about a relationship. And it's very, I'm gonna put this in quotes, boring, inconsequential in terms of action. But the shots very slow and deliberate. So it's not a movie <laughs> you're gonna watch it at 11 PM, right? but that's my introduction to Ryan Gosling. And this was the time when I basically was in college and I would go to Cash and Culture, which of course you're familiar with, and I would buy movies that I felt were decent enough, had good enough IMDb ratings. This was one of them. What stood out to me in Half Nelson was Ryan Gosling's non-verbal communication. His ability in this movie, such a slow, there's not a whole lot happening in terms of action, plot. It's just very character driven. But Ryan Gosling steals every single scene because he does subtle nonverbal communications. The way he, every scene, he'll clap his hands or rub his face, touch a wall. He's always, there's no dead time with Ryan Gosling. And I was like, wow, that stood out to me. And so the first thing I noticed watching this back was this scene with Ryan Gosling as he's leaving. I guess they're a detail business, maybe a car repair business. But as Ryan Gosling leaves, and he's a kid here. This is his first TV appearance, movie or show otherwise. And he does the same thing. So he leaves to plot this way to change his brother. It's so dominated by Ryan Gosling's nonverbal communication. It took me right back to Half Nelson when he was an older, more established actor that he got critical acclaim for. But here as a kid, he just has this like slow, cool movement. And so as he leaves, talking to this mechanic that we don't ever hear from again, he pats him on the back slowly. He gently tosses his rag and then he touches the car, the hearse, three times. Very slowly, very deliberately does it. And then as he walks towards the camera, he kind of does a fist pump. That whole scene is Ryan Gosling, nonverbal communication, no script at all, demonstrating based on what the guy said, hey, should he fix your brother? He's now articulated to the audience that he has a plan somehow to use this hearse to change his brother, to fix his brother. And he did it without any words. And so I was like, the fact that Half Nelson came to my mind as the first Ryan Gosling movie I loved. And to see him as a child actor doing the same thing, kind of blew my mind. Because I was like, he either had this as a kid or whoever the director was that made him think this way, it clearly is the same. The fact that I was drawn to that nonverbal communication kind of blew my mind.
0: It's pretty impressive when you lay it all out. I've got to be honest, it sort of blew by, by me when I was watching it. I didn't really pay attention to his nonverbal cues. I'm not really a big Gosling fan, not meaning that I don't like him, but that I... Haven't really watched a lot of his work. I think this is probably what I've seen him in the most is this episode of, are you afraid of the dark? So interesting that his methods seem to have carried over into his adult career as well.
1: Rewinding a little bit back to Chris, him trapping this bug in the jar. Isn't that like the telltale sign of like a serial killer or sociopath, like wanting to kill an insect. So he traps him in a, this insect in a jar and says, how long will you live? I mean, this insect ostensibly is going to suffocate from a lack of oxygen, and we're left with that, and this is the sympathetic character we're supposed to connect with.
0: It is really hard to connect with, and um, I think throughout the episode, I never connected with Chris, actually. I frankly didn't didn't really care too much, like like, what happened to him, to be completely blunt. I don't mean that as a knock against the episode. I just mean that his character isn't very sympathetic i watch it more though for the performances of the other characters in a way it's kind of bizarre that chris is the main character i don't know why they didn't cast gosling as the main character but i, I guess because of the nature of who that character was that it made more sense to have somebody like chris uh you know the actor that played chris uh, do the role but yeah the whole thing with the bug that that i mean Especially now watching it as an adult, it gives me some serious pause because yeah, harm to animals is a major warning sign, causing unnecessary I mean I'm not talking about people that like squash a like a spider in their house or something, but like unnecessary aggression to animals is not like a great thing to do or to see. It's
1: interesting you say spider in the house. My kids and my wife I cannot kill a bug in my house. We live in the forest, basically, and we get plenty of bugs, plenty of spiders. My kids will not let me kill them. I have to get like a jar or, or some kind of a Tupperware container to, to capture it and release it. And so I've, I've just accepted the fact that, hey, I'm not killing any bugs here. So that kind of made me think a little bit of like, wow, that's so different from how I am now where we can't like kill a bug. In a house and here's this person like willingly trying to kill an insect and and in my opinion torture it
0: that's what's really kind of concerning is the torturing aspect um but i do release now i do release bugs but i I, yeah i didn't when i was a kid i mean that wasn't really a thing in my house you would squash things you know if, if they got in the house for the most part i think that's only something that i started in more recent years really good set up here with the man who disappears, right? We see a little bit of a supernatural occurrence right at the beginning. We see this guy asking if we can help him find his way home. I wonder why Gosling doesn't help him. And he seems reluctant to help him in later scenes as well. What do you think's going on with his character there?
1: You know, I think he just saw him as a weird guy, an old guy, maybe had dementia or something like that. And just not, Again, that's not even on his radar to think that this is happening. So to me, yeah, he's a stranger. I'd want my kid to react the same way. Don't talk to this old man who's clearly lost his mind. You know, let the the guardian or hospital take him back in because he's clearly escaped some kind of a nursing home or a mental institution of some sort.
0: Well, we don't see it, but I, I assume that Gosling doesn't tell anybody about the man like it seems like he just walks away from him and just leaves him to his fate now of course he disappears because he's dead w- which we will uh, figure more out about later but I don't know it seemed a little callous to me because he doesn't even it's not like he goes home and like tells his parents hey there's like this old man outside who's confused like he just sort of lets him go I didn't feel like he was quite as um, sympathetic I guess Gosling I mean
1: you say, go back to his parents. We don't see the parents again. I mean, there's not a single scene of the parents coming back, father or or mother. So it's like, I guess they're just working this whole time. We don't see them again. I mean, we have plenty of scenes that cut back to the kitchen and them interacting, but the parents, they're gone.
2: Yeah,
0: they're no longer, they're just totally absent from this point forward, which, I mean, is a typical plot device of Are You Afraid of the dark." to just conveniently have the parents just not be around so that the kids have to deal with all these things on their own. So, I mean, that's fairly typical.
1: The final thing I wanted to mention about what you talked about with the scenes was Chris playing Hangman. He has a mouse and he's tapping and there's sound effects, right? Hangman's a word game, right? You guess a certain word and he's not typing at all. He's using one hand, using a mouse. He's playing like a a different type of game here. Is there a different kind of hangman here that I'm not aware of? Because you should be typing, right?
0: No, I think this was just a writing issue where the writers didn't really know what sort of games you would play on a computer. And apparently this actor had no idea either how you would. I don't even remember there being a hangman. I'm sure there was, but I don't remember there being a hangman game on the computer. I mean, I, I just grew up with your... You had, like, your Solitaire, your Free Cell, your Minesweeper, you know, those typical games that were pre-installed. I don't remember there being, like a, like, a free, like, pre-installed Hangman, so I'm not even really sure. I think it was just because of the name. I think they just wanted to use the name Hangman, probably, to make him seem even more creepy than he already does.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I think that's a common theme in this episode, because you know even harkening back to what you mentioned about the, the hearse scene it was really hard for me to connect what was happening because Ryan Gosling uses the battery like a jump start cable to start the car but if you've jumped a car before you have to turn the ignition right they don't even address that whatsoever and then Chris is in the hearse and yet he's acting trapped the keys are in the car i mean he could just he could just leave, right? I mean, there's there's nothing trapping him in this car because he has the keys. He could just unlock it. Like I was not able to connect with the despair that he experienced fearing being in this hearse because he had the keys. I mean, he could have driven it away if he wanted to, ostensibly, let alone just opening a door. I mean, it would have been so easy for him to do. And then the next scene after this is him doing that. It's a cut to him in the kitchen. So he's obviously left... The hearse. So this whole idea of captivity in the hearse just couldn't connect with me because he had so many ways to escape. I don't know how much of it is is like Ryan Gosling failing in his prank or just ignoring the fact of the reality of what this prank was. I, I it's, it's hard for me to reconcile Chris's fear knowing he could just escape. I can understand the radio station turning on. That's supernatural. I get that. But the car locking the way that it did where he couldn't escape and then he does i it was hard for me to understand that
0: i don't think that mechanically the jumper cable battery thing really makes sense so that that is a little bit fuzzy to me and we do see that the key is in the ignition because he turns it off like he he turns it off once he notices it but yeah the panic was uh well let's just say for somebody who supposedly is so in love with the death chris seems to be very skittish around any sort of danger. And we'll see that throughout the episode that he doesn't really seem like he's that into death really. Um, even though that's supposedly his whole personality at this point, I will say that the concept of lying down in a hearse freaks me the heck out. And is one of the, like, it's just a very unnatural sort of feeling the idea of even imagining it. I'm not a big fan of, like rituals involving death well i'm not a fan of rituals in general but when we get around to you know death rituals like the hearses coffins people being out and viewings and all that sort of stuff it sort of has this unclean sort of like energy to me like i don't like being around bodies death all that sort of stuff it just i don't really understand i don't understand why we do these things And uh, so the idea of voluntarily lying down in a hearse where bodies after bodies have been laid, that really creeps me the heck out. So I don't know if you had any sort of like visceral reaction to the idea of being in the
1: hearse or imagining that. Nothing like that, thankfully, because it wasn't no one's getting buried in dirt, really. (laughs) That's kind of my perspective of it. My visceral reaction was about the whole concept behind Daniel Carpenter. So like, I kind of thought maybe the reason Chris couldn't escape the hearse was because death is basically enclosing him in the hearse, so he can't escape. He has to face death. But yet we know Daniel Carpenter, the actual dead person in the hearse, is able to escape. And so there's this radio station that helps Lost Souls... Find where they're going. What is the purpose of this radio station? Like, why is Daniel Carpenter not able to go to the afterlife? Like, why is, like, what happened that prevented him from crossing over that he was able to escape and then he needed the radio station? Like, I couldn't understand why all of that was happening.
0: I never, that never even occurred to me because I just sort of assumed with ghosts the whole reason the whole concept behind ghosts that people normally give is that they can't move on for some reason and you know whether it's some sort of unfinished business or whatever it is but they're trapped between realms if i can use a sabrina term they're trapped between realms because they there's something blocking them from moving ahead so i don't know what daniel carpenter the old man that we see what his specific reason is, but I just sort of assumed that all of these lost souls that we see had some sort of problem though. They couldn't move on now as to the radio station. The thing that I think is a little strange is that the radio station is in the hearse, but so like at what point is the spirit hearing the station because they're already dead when they're in the hearse. So, like, their body's in the hearse, and then their body goes to the graveyard and gets buried, or they get cremated, or whatever. But the spirit, like, why would the spirit hear the radio station? Are they hanging around the body the whole time? Just, like, watching, like, their body, like, being driven in the hearse, and then they hear the radio? I don't know, the the logistics of the spirits coming into contact with the radio are a little bit difficult, I think.
1: I like what you said about the unfinished business because that's the exact verbiage from like Casper. Another movie I can't wait to cover, but the idea of unfinished business. Trying to explain ultimately like why ghosts would exist if they do. Why would they be there? Cuz they have stuff they need to do. Or is it like a purgatory where they have to do or some kind of punishment for their sins? Like what's going on here that they wouldn't just cross over? And we have no real idea what Daniel Carpenter's issue is, and unfortunately, it doesn't really get addressed, right? It, it's just kind of like, for whatever reason, he's just a lost soul that was displaced, and they never really explained it, as far as I'm aware.
0: Well, after this, we have a very, very brief scene in the kitchen.
1: How's it going, hers boy? Hey, I'm listening to that. It's four o'clock, chumpy. You know I never miss Clark and Ryan. I oh, yeah. oh, yeah. oh, yeah. do you want. Don't be mad. I was just trying to get you to lighten up. So lighten up.
0: And then, right from there, we go into Chris's bedroom, where he is trying to look up the radio station. And he's typing it into this amazing old computer, old 90s computer. You can see the the old interface on the screen. It's, it's really great. Uh, and he's at a website that is called radiospace.com. And he is typing in the 109.1 to try to find out where it is located. Initially it says that there are no matches, then he clicks something that says Last Entry. And when he clicks that on the screen, it brings up an address, which is 63 East 9th Street, Center City. Immediately after this, we cut to Chris wandering around town trying to find the station, and he keeps bumping into people that ask him,
2: Excuse me?
0: And there are at least three or four people that we see that do this, but he, just like his brother, ignores them, and he keeps trying to find the radio station. Eventually, he does. He comes upon a doorway. Looks very old, looks run down, the sign is in bad shape, but he knocks, but just eventually just opens the door and walks in on his own. And as he goes inside, we see what is essentially a large waiting room. We hear numbers being called over the intercom, we hear numbers like 394 8279 819, 819 and pretty soon we will know why, but for now we have no idea. You can notice that the people that are waiting all seem to have some sort of armbands on, or at least wristbands, I should say, and we will see more about those in a little bit. Now, as Chris walks down past this waiting space where there's a big line of people, there is a sign, and there are many signs on the wall that they say do not talk. And there's another sign as we reach what appears to be some sort of counter where the people are lined up in front of. The counter has a sign that says do not knock on the window. And of course Chris goes up and does the exact thing that he's not supposed to do and he starts talking and trying to get the attention of the person behind the window. At that exact moment, Gilbert Gottfried, in all of his glory, bursts open the two doors of the window that had been closed, these wooden doors, and he starts just losing it and just completely tearing Chris apart.
2: Do not knock on the window! What's the matter with you? You can't breathe? Here, knock window. Do not on the, let's try it together shall we? Do not knock on the window!
0: And he also is annoyed that Chris doesn't seem to understand the idea of a line.
2: But I'm just... uh, This is an interesting phenomenon that's taking place. It's like one person and then there's another one behind them, all standing quietly one after the other. What do you suppose that is? Mm. It's a line! what it is it's a lie why don't you try waiting in the line
0: but chris continues talking to him and so he just eventually pulls chris over behind the counter and he says look maybe you've got an eternity but i'm on schedule and so he's trying to get chris to hurry it up and figure out what it is that he needs chris as soon as he walks behind the counter Gets slapped on the wrist with one of these armbands. Gottfried hits him with it, and it's really great because it's one of those nineteen nineties style like slap bracelets where it just you know you slap. It's like it's a straight like line of a bracelet, and then you slap it on your wrist, and it curls around. I think they were very popular back in the day. So Chris is very confused at this point about what's going on, and he makes a comment about needing to go home. And Gottfried says, You
2: are going home. You're going home to the next life.
0: And then he looks at a big list that he has. And Chris had mentioned that he heard about the radio station because he was in a hearse. And so Gottfried uses this information to look at this big list that he has. And he says, hearse, hearse, hearse. And then he's like, ah, there you are. Carpenter, Daniel James, buried this afternoon. And he says, you stayed with the hearse too long. Is that it? Well, that happens. Now, Chris tries to tell him that he has made a horrible mistake.
2: But I'm not dead, and I'm not that carpenter guy. There's been a mistake.
0: But Gottfried, of course, does not believe him. He tells him that he will look into the mistake. But in the meantime, why doesn't he go get in the line and walk through the door whenever it is his turn? We hear more numbers. Now we are at 8 before it was 819. So we've moved up to the next person in line. As this whole conversation is happening, we see a man being grabbed and forced forward by several hooded figures. They are wearing these cloaks and robes, and they grab the man who is screaming and yelling that they've made a mistake and that it's not his time to to go, and they push him through some sort of door. We don't really know a ton about the door other than that it seems to be a gateway to the afterlife. And Gottfried tells us that
2: He led a nasty life. And he's gonna lead a much nastier afterlife. Step outside, your turn is coming.
0: (laughs) Gottfried bursts out into laughter directly at the camera. It's quite maniacal it's quite uh, evil sounding laughter and chris is going to try to get out of there but before we move any further into chris's journey this is a big scene got a lot going on we get introduced into the idea of this doorway to the afterlife and gottfried seems to be basically like a some sort of like government worker almost he makes a reference later about being a bureaucrat an office worker at the DMV in his previous life. And this very much has the vibe of like a a DMV for the afterlife. So lots of stuff here. I'll let you step in.
1: Yeah, it's definitely BMV DMV vibes with the numbers being shouted out here. And I was kind of curious about what his actual role is here. Is he like St. Peter here? Is he like a gatekeeper trying to decide who makes it in? Like we know he's dead and he's in servitude for eternity doing this what is his role here just to simply process dead people
0: he refers to this later on as his job because he gets worried at one point when chris does something later in the episode that he could lose his job but yet he also tells us that he's dead because there's a whole other joke later on where he goes on about being dead and so you know i don't want to spoil that too much right now but I'm a little confused about his role, too, because he's dead. He hasn't moved on, right? Because he hasn't gone through the door. He's still in our realm here. So then I wonder, is Gottfried also, like, an unsettled spirit of some sort? Or does he, like, work in this, quote, you know, DMV for the afterlife? Does he work there during the day and then return to the spirit realm? Like later? I mean, what is the nature of this man's existence? I I really don't understand it. I mean, don't get me wrong, it's a great setup, but if you think about it practically, I don't really get what he is. He doesn't seem to be a Saint Peter to me. I mean, yes, he is like a gatekeeper, I guess, but I mean, he's certainly not all there for good intentions. He seems to really enjoy throwing people into their potential, like, torture in the afterlife, you know, like this one guy, he, he finds it quite funny when they toss him inside. Gottfried apparently knows people that were good or bad because he says he lived a nasty life. So maybe he is a Saint, a Saint Peter figure. I'm not sure how to take
1: it. The episode clearly sets up this idea of heaven and hell based on how you lived your life. Do you die and go to heaven or die and go to hell? And I agree with you that he does kind of have these vibes where he understands it. As we'll know from Daniel Carpenter, I think he can kind of vibe based on how people are approaching death, probably where they're at in life, right? Like, if somebody's ready for death, they're going to be more happy, and if not, they're going to be more reticent about it. So I think he might just be vibing off of how they think about it. So we hear about Ryan Gosling not missing this Clark and Ryan show. And I was curious about that because I was like, what radio show as a kid do I remember? I couldn't miss. I To me, this is so novel. I, I've never heard of that before. It kind of took me back to like Christmas story with the radio show. There's no show as a kid that I would listen to that's like, I got to see it. And yet they included it. So it's, I was so disconnected from that. Do you have any idea on what the Clark and Ryan show is? Man, I
0: didn't listen to the radio as a kid either. And the concept of somebody that is that age being so excited to listen to the radio was a little bit strange to me. But no, Clark and Ryan's show, I wrote it down too in a later part. I missed it in this section. I was really wondering, like, what could this be? I mean, it's is it like our podcast? I mean, so we have two guys, Clark and Ryan. I wonder if it's a nostalgia show except for them it would probably be about I guess since this is the 1990s maybe like the 1970s that's what I would make it into just because I think it would be funny if they were using our concept but as to the actual episode they don't actually tell us anything about it just that it's Clark and Ryan so I mean what do you think Clark and Ryan are into
1: what do they talk about it's probably a horror podcast (laughs) something like that I have I have no idea I, I honestly have no idea.
0: Like an, like a very very early uh, like true crime podcast, <laughs> something like that. I mean, it would fit for the for the story that we're into here. I have to say, too, um, Gottfried's performance from the very beginning—it's so good. I feel like he—I know you uh, were really drawn in by Gosling's acting. For me, Gottfried is the episode. I feel like if we didn't have him in here in this role with the charisma that he has and his comedic timing, but his ability to also seem kind of evil at the same time. Maybe not evil, but a little bit maniacal at times. I don't know if this would work, really. I mean, you I think his role is very pivotal. I think without it, it would be a lot harder to make the script work once we get into these scenes in the radio station.
1: Yeah, I mean, Godfrey's the star here. He definitely, this is his episode, he blankets everyone else with what he does. And I'm kind of curious about the performance. Obviously, he's amazing in what he does, and I think he does everything great. So he's so funny. He has so many good one-liners. Just even the, the idea of him working at the DMV, you know, whatever your state calls it, that whole do not knock sign scene, it's so funny. And it's constantly retriculated throughout the episode. Is he too funny? Like, is he too funny for what he's doing? Like, I will say this. He is scary when, when he needs to be scary. Like his grimaces, his smile, very effective at what he does. But I felt like the comedy also was just, it was so everywhere in this episode. When maybe it shouldn't have been, right? So I don't know. It's like, again, his acting's perfect. But was he too funny in this?
0: I think he hits it just right. I I think that the comedy actually enhances his scariness because he can turn on a dime. Like, he seems at certain moments like he's being funny, he's being silly. But then in a second, he becomes menacing, or he becomes... He screams, or he says something really harsh, or he decides later on in the episode that... He's going to throw Chris into the door because he got on his nerves. So he's very uh, unpredictable. And to me, the unpredictability and the sort of weird mix of comedy and the horror elements, I think it actually enhances the horror. At least for me, it does because you don't know quite what to expect from him. It's like in a split second, he becomes a different person. So he's, he's very... He's almost dangerous, you know, in a way, is how I would sort of characterize
1: him. Yeah, he's got this Jekyll and Hyde persona where he's super funny and then super serious. And it's like, oh, 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 yeah, this is really something that we need to be concerned about. And I agree. I I think he was, again, he was super effective in accomplishing both.
0: The next scene, we have Chris running home from the station and when he gets there, his brother Jamie can't hear anything that he says. Now, he's actually on the phone when Chris gets back, and he's talking to some unidentified person on the other line, mentioning that he's going to be listening once again to Clark and Ryan. Chris goes through this whole scene saying things to Jamie like,
2: That radio station I heard in the hearse? I went there! There all these strange people hanging around! I think they were all dead! I'm not making this
0: up! Jamie ignores him, and it just keeps going on where Chris can't get his attention whatsoever. At one point, Chris tries to grab Jamie, and his hand goes through him. So clearly, there's absolutely no way that Jamie can hear what is going on. Now, in this scene at the house where Jamie is completely unable to hear him, one thing that's important to note is that when that wristband went on him, It basically gave him Daniel Carpenter's number. He has his number to be sent through the door. And because of that wristband, he is now kind of in this limbo where he is no longer able to be acknowledged by people that are alive. Chris isn't exactly dead yet, but he's also not so much in the realm of the living. So whenever Chris tries to grab Jamie, he tries to swat at him to get his attention, his hand goes right through him. And at this point, Chris is freaking out. He yells for his mom at one point, and then he tries to run through one of the doors of the house, but it opens him right back into the station. And as we are back into the station, we hear the numbers increasing even more from the loudspeaker. Now we are at 855, so it has gone up quite a lot from last time, about uh, 35 numbers up from the last one that we had heard. What we haven't actually seen too much yet, too clearly, but if you look later on you can see, is that the number on the bracelet that Chris has ends in 65, 865. So we are 10 people away from his number getting called at this point. When Chris is wandering back into the station, he sees this door with a red glow coming from behind it, and he decides to press into the room to see what's going on behind the door. It turns out that Gottfried is inside the room, and he yells at Chris for coming in. He says, this is probably one of my favorite lines, it might be my favorite line in the whole episode, he says...
2: in here unless you're in the union
0: whatever this job is that he has apparently in the afterlife they are in fact unionized what gottfried is doing in this room is that he is actually recording and sending out the radio messages and he's doing it in a totally different voice
2: this is station 109.1 for spirits at the end of their ropes i made that up and
0: he gives messages about if you need to find your way home, to come to the station. And as this is all going on, we hear another number get called, and now we're up to 856. We find out, finally, that Gottfried's character's name is Roy, because Chris calls him Mister, and he says Roy. The name is Roy. Chris continues trying to explain that he's not really dead, and that this is a mistake, and Gottfried says,
2: Boy, if I had a dime! For every time somebody tried to weasel out of death, it would actually do me no good at all, because I'm dead. What do I need money for? What am I going to do? I'm dead. What am I going to do? Buy gum?
0: So, Gottfried is clearly in this weird limbo where, for whatever reason, he's working at this place, but he's already a spirit, he's already dead. We never really find out anything about his backstory, though, so this is all really guesswork at this point. Gottfried continues defending himself against Chris, and he says,
2: I don't make mistakes, buddy boy. When I was alive, I worked for the Department of Motor Vehicles!
0: As this conversation is continuing about Chris being the wrong guy, we have another person getting pushed in with hooded figures and they are also freaking out saying that it's not them they have the wrong guy and they continue and push him in through the door as well at this point we're getting close to the beginning of the ryan and clark show which we had learned would start at four o'clock chris is able to take the initiative here uh, whenever gottfried leaves the room to broadcast to the station that his brother would be listening to and he starts trying to send him messages asking for help.
2: Jamie, Jamie, this is Chris. Man, I hope you're listening to this. I'm trapped at the radio station. They think I'm dead, and they're going to make me go to the afterlife.
0: We do see that in the real world, Gosling is out working on one of his cars, and he does have the radio turned on, and he starts hearing these messages coming in from Chris. But he doesn't believe it.
2: Okay, nice try. I'm
1: not falling for it.
0: But as Gosling turns around, he runs into Daniel Carpenter, the old man, once again, who keeps asking him for help.
2: Can you take me there? Can you help me find the way home?
0: Gosling tries to run away from the old man. He runs back inside the house, into the kitchen. But when he turns around, right in front of him, we have Daniel Carpenter. Now, for whatever reason, and I still don't understand how he knows this, Daniel Carpenter tells Gosling that I need help, and so does your brother. This is the line that gets Gosling to finally consider helping the old man. Now, before we go any further, again, lots of stuff happening here. How does the old man know that his brother is in trouble?
1: Again, we have no idea why he was able to exit the hearse the way that he did. But maybe he was on the outside looking in and kind of saw that, oh, mistaken identity here with the brother, he would know more than anybody, but we have no idea why he was out of the hearse in the first place. And we also know that he's a good guy. I mean, he wants to find the end result here. He wants to find his home, right? He's not trying to say, oh, you got the wrong guy. I'm not ready, etc. He's kind of embracing this idea that he's going to go into the afterlife. So he seems like a good guy here. I mean, it seems like he's He's well-intentioned, and so to me, it seems reasonable that maybe he somehow knew that Chris was mistaken for him. I have no idea why or how, but maybe he was on the on the outside looking in there.
0: So again, we have, like you had mentioned, a lot of comedy from Gottfried. In these scenes, he's a little bit more toned down in the sense that he's not as scary, but he is still overseeing these souls getting hurled through the door, which he always seems to enjoy quite a lot. What do you think about Chris's terror in this scene? Because isn't this what he wanted? Didn't he want to experience death?
1: Well, I was wondering that from the hearse scene, when he's locked in in a hearse. Seems like something he'd want. So I have no idea why they established somebody so in love with the macabre who now just suddenly is like oh i'm i'm so against it he has no inquisitiveness he's just afraid he's afraid to go to the afterlife why you know if it indeed is him living in a state of grace he should want the afterlife I, so yeah i don't i can't reconcile like chris being this super enthusiastic person about the dead and then facing the dead and he's like i want nothing to do with it let me let me get out but at the same time it's also the idea of maybe him having some naive ideas of what death is, naive ideas on what the afterlife is, and him facing it now is kind of giving him the wake-up call that he needs. And you know, we'll talk about this later, but this might be what he needs to be a normal kid, to actually face death, face actually what that would mean, kind of wakes him up. And so it's not as glorified and majestic as he made it out to be.
0: Yeah, I if I could use a, a very 90s term, I feel like he is kind of a poser. You know, he has the trappings of death and the flowers and the music and the funeral room and everything. But... It seems like deep down he's just like a scared kid that for some reason i don't know why he brought on this identity onto himself but it doesn't seem like he's really that in tune with the idea of death at all when it comes down to it so i know chris is an unusual character he's not relatable because of how he is acting at the beginning of the episode putting bugs in jars and talking about people getting buried alive at dinner time and everything so it's not like I'm really cheering for him. I don't really have much attachment to Chris here. It's more of, I'm actually more curious to see how does Ryan Gosling react to the situation? Like, now that he has heard Chris through the radio, now that the old man has actually shown himself to him and he's can tell that something's going on, is he going to make it in time to save Chris But I'm not actually as invested in Chris himself. I don't know how you felt about his character at this point, because we're actually getting pretty close to the final scene of the episode here.
1: Well, Ryan Gosling's the hero here. I mean, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But the idea of Chris, I think, he's yeah, he's reaching out for something that makes sense. And to me, I've seen plenty of movies that use that motif of people like they're just drowning and they want something to connect to. So they connect with like a serial killer and they befriend him and, and be with him. And then it's like, oh, when push comes to shove, you're killing somebody. Or if you're belonging to a cult like Jonestown or something like that, like you actually got to take the medicine to go to go to whatever and die. And it's like, oh, now things are real. And so Chris, I think, is just lashing out. He's reaching out, trying to find X, Y, and Z. And here he is in death connecting with it. And now he's faced with it, and he's like, whoa, I don't actually want to deal with this. I was just kind of reaching out. And Ryan Gosling, the older brother here, from the very beginning, says, he's weird. I'm going to fix him, and I'm going to pull a prank on him. And hopefully this fixes him. And I guess we'll find out if Ryan Gosling's approach works.
0: Okay, so we are back at the station, and the numbers keep coming. We get up to 858. At this point in the story, we see that uh, Godfrey notices that Chris has been broadcasting in the room. And he basically yells at him and says, What are you doing? I could lose my job. And he starts chasing him around the recording room, the broadcasting room.
2: Don't bother running, kid. There's no way to hide.
0: Chris runs off into the hallway and he runs into a random room where he like very weakly barricades the door, like he moves a couple boxes around, and then he sort of hides underneath it of a kind of like a desk sort of thing. And we hear the numbers going. We get up to 859, and we see the 865 that is on his wrist on his band. But Gottfried has had enough. We hear him yell,
2: get the numbers! You can my nerves, keep going
0: now! And the hooded figures come in, They pull Chris away, and they start taking him toward the door. Now, as we are getting ready for Chris to get thrust into the door by the hooded figures, and Gottfried is loving it. He's standing there just enjoying every second of it because Chris has been a thorn in his side all day. Gosling and Daniel Carpenter arrive at the station, and they run in just before Chris is about to be thrown in, and Gosling yells out... And Gottfried says, nah, I don't think so. And then he has him thrown into the door anyway. As he gets thrown into the door, the last thing that Gottfried said was, prove it. You know, prove that he isn't dead. So we hear some noises. There's a little bit of shaking. And all of a sudden, Chris is flung backwards out of the door into the station once again. And Chris tells us that they rejected me. They said I wasn't dead. And then Gottfried responds, great, there goes my pension. And he says,
2: All right, let's not make a federal case out of this. So I made a teensy-weensy little mistake, and I was about to send an innocent young
1: boy to his death.
0: So what? Have none of you ever done this before?
1: Why was Gilbert so confident that Chris was Daniel Carpenter? Like, in that, we're going to go back to the beginning. All Chris said was a hearse. And and from that alone, he knew it was Daniel Carpenter. I mean, why is he so confident?
0: There's a couple things about that that don't make a ton of sense. Because, okay, first of all, how many dead people go in hearses? Basically all of them. Secondly, is there no other information on... Gottfried's list. Like it so it just says person's name and like where they were whenever they heard the radio message, or however they were transported to wherever they were buried, or whatever. Like it doesn't say 75 years old or like something like that. There's no other identifying information. So yeah, but he seems completely certain about it. The only thing I can say is that it seems like his entire day is just him hearing people protest that it's not them and that they made a mistake because the two previous guys that they threw into the door were claiming the same thing. So I guess he's just, I mean, he's basically, he's like a parody of a government worker because he keeps talking about how he worked at the Department of Motor Vehicles, how he was in the union, how he has a pension, and clearly he's supposed to be like this disgruntled worker that doesn't care anymore he's just like i'm clocking in i'm doing my nine to five here and i don't know what he does afterwards because as we already saw he's dead but so and apparently he doesn't work for money right because he said that if he had a dime for every time this happened but then he was like well that wouldn't do me any good because i'm dead what am i going to do with that so i don't really know what he even works for but I guess he just doesn't care that much. Like, and he just assumes that, yeah, he's on the list, so there it is. But the identification process, that is a bad process. They need to they need to ramp that up somehow. Maybe, like, some some ID cards or some, like, thumbprint recognition or something. I don't know, but, like, a retinal scan. I don't really know what the budget for this place is. It doesn't seem like it's that good because the outside was pretty run down. But I don't know. I mean, did you have any thoughts about how Gottfried was so certain that this kid was Daniel Carpenter?
1: No, it, it all ties into the government, like you said, and the BMV, DMV, whatever you know it as in your state. And that was kind of my, again, that was one of my criticisms is, is he just too funny? Like, it's clearly a parody of government workers. And I have no idea what his role is. He is nothing like, no skin in the game per se. Like He has no punishment for this, right? And that kind of removed a little bit of the fear for me because Chris goes into the gates of X, Y, and Z, whatever you want to call it. He gets shot back out. It's like a foolproof strategy. So it's like he had no actual risk of ever dying. Like The whole time that he was afraid he was going to be put improperly, there was a safeguard mechanism to save him from that. The whole fear and scariness of it just was removed because here's Godfrey cracking jokes. Chris is able to get out. No problem. There's never any actual fear or risk to either Chris or Godfrey from this. And then when Chris gets out, the choice of the episode is to crack jokes. Like, Hey, Godfrey's like, yeah, you know, I made a mistake. And again, that's funny. It's funny. But at the same time, what if they decided to go with a plot where, he actually felt some kind of ramification for messing up, like some kind of skin in the game where him messing up again, he mentions he was afraid of being fired. We have no idea what that means, but what if he had some kind of fear of X, Y, and Z happening for him failing? So it's again, it's this dichotomy of the the humor, which is obviously good and the scariness, which is obviously good. But to me, it kind of, I didn't see how it connected.
0: I don't know. I thought the humor was on point. The thing that I definitely agree with is that the stakes aren't there at the end. And I think that for me, the humor is not the not the issue. It's more of the way that they handle the afterlife and like the gate to the afterlife, that there aren't repercussions. I'm not really so concerned with Godfrey having skin in the game because to me, he is sort of I mean, he's already dead, so like he's sort of above everything that's happening. He's not really the one at risk, but I thought would have been a good ending, which does not happen here, because the last part of the scene that we didn't cover yet is that when Chris gets thrown back out, Daniel Carpenter finally does go through the door, and Chris basically says, why did he just go through? Why wasn't he afraid? And Gottfried says,
2: It's only horrible if you've led a bad life let a good life, is the best thing go.
0: So that's where the episode almost ends. There's a little bit after that. But it's sort of almost like the happy ending with Carpenter to me was the problem. Because, you know, Carpenter goes in and it's great. And I guess, I don't know, to me, Gottfried's last words there about, oh, it's great if you lived a good life. It was almost like two... Happy like I wanted some sort of twist here where Chris yeah he got thrown out but he still has some kind of strange effects from being in the door in the first place like maybe he comes out and maybe now he's a ghost like because he walked through the after like through the doors and like no one can see him when he goes home or some kind of like twist like dark ending which you get on some of these are you afraid of the dark episodes where everything seems okay, but it's not. But in this one, it's legitimately just okay. He goes home after this. We see him walking outside with his brother. He has his baseball stuff with him. They're going to go, as Gosling says, hang out in the real world. He even sees the bug and lets him out of the jar, which I do appreciate. But there's no... um, I guess for Chris's character... I wanted some sort of dark twist to occur where somehow something wasn't quite right. Something didn't quite go the way they thought it did. Somehow he's still connected to, to the station or to the afterlife or some sort of ghost situation, whatever they could have come up with. I felt like it was too clean of an ending.
1: No, I agree. And they could have done it very easily with regard to him playing with the dead. Right, like a Ouija board type of scenario. I mean, we saw in Pinball Wizard, which we've covered, that it's just playing games, right? When you're supposed to be on the clock, just playing a pinball game, you could be caught in an eternity of damnation, right? And so for him just to be like, Oh, you're wrongfully X, Y, and Z, come back out, you're good to go. Wait, you're right. It's way too clean. I mean, they could have put him in eternal torment based on this mischaracterization, but the theme could have been hey, don't mess with the occult. Don't mess with the dead. Focus on the living, etc. And they decided instead to go really clean with it.
0: Yeah, I agree. I, I'm fine with how they ended Carpenter's story, having him go in, and he was fine. But I feel like with Chris, yeah, there should have been some kind of penalty or something where maybe he goes home, and like you said, it's almost like a Ouija situation Maybe he ends up, like, now he's haunted because he went through that door. Maybe now he can, maybe if he's not a ghost, he can now see all of the ghosts that are out there in the world. Like, he can see all of the spirits, and, like, they're constantly asking him, can you help me, can you help me, or, like, there's some sort of any kind of dark twist at all. Like, anything to make it not be just a, now I'm living a normal life. Something that was, like, a lasting scar or influence from what happened
1: it's not just chris that i have issues with it's gilbert right he should have been punished and so that's a great way of finishing this off gilbert making the mistake he did he should have been subject to torment and then maybe chris takes his role right something like that where it's like gilbert has some consequence for messing up because he's like oh i could lose my job And he's afraid of it. And yet nothing happens. He makes a big mistake and he just casually makes a joke like, oh, uh, that that could happen occasionally. And then nothing happens to him.
0: So I kind of like nothing happening to him because I like the idea of his character being untouchable because he's whatever he is. We don't really know what his nature is. However, if we were going to go with that, I think I came up with a great idea, which is the hooded figures could have dragged Gottfried through the door. And then, like you said, Chris then is forced to take his
1: role. That would
0: have been a really good ending, I think.
1: No, I I completely agree. I think that would be a really good ending. Obviously, I'm happy that Daniel Carpenter gets the ending that he does. Seems like he lived a good life. And, you know, I know myself personally, like that is my biggest fear, would be dying in a state where I felt that I was not ready to experience the afterlife in the way that I wanted to. And you're dealing with eternity at that point versus somebody who lived in grace. So it's like, my life is to be Daniel Carpenter and to have that exit. That would be, that's everyone's dream, I feel. And so to have that type of ending would be amazing. To me though, the people that say, oh, it's not my turn, I'm not ready. Wow, that really horrifies me because at that point you're done. There's nothing you can do to fix it. You're just subject to eternal X, Y, and Z. That's not going well for you.
0: Yeah, I thought that was an interesting idea of this whole concept of people being ready or not ready. I take a perspective where I feel like even if you felt like you had lived a good life, I could see still not being ready. In my opinion... There's so much to do in the world. Like, there's so much to learn, so much to see, so many places to go, so many experiences to have. I feel like even if you felt secure in how you had behaved, that you still might regret leaving. You know, not wanting to leave people behind that you know. But I feel like the people in this episode, there's not really anyone like that. It's very clearly... We have these guys that were bad guys. Gottfried even tells us one of them was bad. And they're the ones that don't want to go. And then I guess Carpenter apparently is completely at peace with the idea. I don't know. In psychology, there's this there's this one psychologist that came up with these different stages of life. And the last one is called integrity versus despair. And it basically comes down to your ability to Accept your own mortality, and that's basically the whole like final. It's like the final milestone of a person's life in many ways. So it does sort of square with that idea.
1: I could get someone like Chris feeling that way, but the people that were untimely ripped from their human existence, right? They were all old. I mean, they're not. I mean, they're probably in their sixties or seventies. Like, I feel like if you're in your sixties and seventies, you know you're going to die. You know, within reason. It's like at what age and we're what mid thirties, right? At what age do you feel like, oh, okay, this makes sense that I'm dying now versus is there a point in your life where you're like, okay, I'm at the age where now if I die, it's okay. Versus, you know, if you're 70, do you still feel like, oh, I got more time. I shouldn't be removed from human existence. I mean, at what point does that happen? Like you can understand like a 10 year old dying and being like, okay, like that's way too young. But these people, I mean, they were in their 60s, maybe 70s, dying and still, hey, uh, it's too early for me. I mean, is there any age where you say, and again, we're not old enough to know, but is there an age where you're like, okay, I get that now my time's coming soon?
0: Like you said, it's hard to know. I, I don't really think for me, I I feel like, I, I don't know if I would reach that point um, because I feel like there'd always be something else I wanted to do, but I mean, our parents are in their, you know, all the millennials listening, our parents are all in their 60s and 70s. I don't really think of 60s and 70s as being old. I think maybe that's because basically all of my grandparents lived into either their 80s or 90s. So for me, I would kind of feel like minimum 80s is what I would probably want to live to. But there's all these other factors like, are you healthy? I feel like we'll have to do the podcast for another 30 or 40 years before we have definitive answers to these questions. The final scene of the episode is a brief Midnight Society scene.
2: So the next time you play a radio, listen close. You may just pick up a signal just for you.
0: We have a vote about Stig getting into the Midnight Society. He says beforehand that if you don't let me in now, you weren't listening and I agree because honestly his first story he should have gotten in that's still ridiculous that he didn't make it in but they you know they do their whole voting thing they huddle together and they finally decide that he in fact is going to be let in although while they are while they are conferring Stig put on his radio and he was playing some sort of metal music on the radio which then they all glared at him and he had to turn it off But they do, in fact, let him in. And when he finds out, he goes in for what appears to be a high five. But actually, he is trying to hug the female members of the Midnight Society. And he goes in for hugs on as many as he can, but they all sort of flee from him. And the episode ends with the oldest of the Midnight Society, our leader, Gary, saying to his younger brother who is Stig's friend.
1: Control him or I'll throw you both out. And then
0: he pours the water on the fire, and that is our, I guess, happy ending. Stig never does another story in all of season five, and then that is the end of the initial run of the show, but he made it in. So, I mean, what do you think about the Midnight Society here? Are they too picky that they've taken two stories to give Stig his due?
1: No, I think it's reasonable. I mean, they have a very specific guideline for what they want for someone in the minute society. You're not going to do it with one story. And so it's kind of like, we want to see the commitment. We want to see how much you love it. That's a huge passion for them. So to me, I wouldn't, you know, one story to me is not enough. And it's not even necessarily the stories because I think you could even have a mediocre story and still make it in. Again, he has two bangers here, but just the commitment and the desire to go again, I keep thinking back to movie crew of our biggest guideline was just commitment, you know, making it every week, going to the movies, seeing the movies. That was the biggest thing. And so for them, they just want to see the commitment. They just want to see that, Hey, on this day, when we do this, you're going to show up and you're going to play your role and fulfill your duty. And if you do that, you're good to go. So I think this story More so than it being a good story, was just Stig being consistent in what he was doing. I think that's really what they were testing. And I think any society or any group, that would be what you're testing. The idea that this new member is going to be as committed to it and care about it and love it as much as you do.
0: I think part of the problem here is really his personality. I don't really like Stig. I, I never liked him from the first one either. He has this this very um, distasteful personality. They demonstrate it in different ways, like how he plays music whenever they're trying to vote, the way he acts toward the girls that are in the society there at the ending. He's clearly kind of a little bit of a loose cannon, I guess we could say. So maybe I, I think a big part of the problem, probably with the first story, is that even though it was a good story, there were members that just didn't want him there. So I think that this story was good enough that it was it overcame those reservations that they had against him.
1: Yeah, they ran out of ideas to you can imagine Stig coming in there and they just said, listen, you don't have the Frank vibe here. We don't like you. We don't want you here. I know you may give good stories, but we just we're not having fun with you here. So regardless of your story content, we just don't want you here because you're so repulsive (laughs) for X, Y and Z. I see that with Stig, where it's like, okay, you can have good stories, but we just don't like you being here. And he felt kind of entitled here. He's kind of like mad, giving this story that he wasn't allowed in with Dead Man's Float. He's like, I give a good story. I should be back here. Kind of felt a little entitled. And yet, it's just like, if you're a member of the Midnight Society, you also want to have people you can get along with. And experience stories with in a good way. And Stig's kind of come up, again, good stories, but... Not somebody you probably want to be hanging out with when you're doing the doing the dust and the fire at night. You know, it's like he just, yeah, you're right. He's kind of repulsive.
0: Yeah, and you were right to compare it to Movie Crew because that was a very exclusive membership to pass that test, you know, to, to pass that bar. It was really down to commitment more than anything. But I do recall that there were times where we had issues where there were people who wanted to tag along with the movie crew who were not dedicated members of it. And that was always a problem because it was awkward. You know, you had to tell people no, but the whole idea was that if you were in movie crew, you were committed to it. And if you were only going to be there one week, miss a couple weeks, try to come along a different week, that's not really what it was about. In the midnight society, you've got to be there every week. So this brings us to our final thoughts. Now, as usual, we have the Internet Movie Database rating for the episode at an 8.2 this time. I thought that was pretty low. I mean, it's it's not a terrible score, because our scoring system, we do out of 10. So 8.2, that would be sort of like a low B sort of score. This is a little bit tricky for me to score this one. Um, I have nostalgia for it. Like I mentioned, I was definitely into the acting. Gottfried was the main one for me, but watching it back as an adult, you know, Gosling's parts were also very excellent. Chris, he's fine. I don't have strong feelings toward him one way or the other. The plot's a little messy. Some of the logic isn't there. We talked about problems with the scene with the car and questions as to what's the origin of Gottfried's character, like as to what type of being he is and then that clean ending. The clean ending is the thing that kind of makes it hard for me to give this a really high score. So the 8.2 I do think is low. I landed on an 8.5 for this one, Uh, so it's like sort of a medium B rating, and that is mainly based off of the acting and some of the nostalgia that I have for it. I like the theme, the life and death theme, but... Again, I just feel like they let Chris off too easy in the end, so I'm not going to quite push this up to an A level episode. I think it's a B level episode.
1: Yes, you said 8.2. I agree with that. I think it's an 8.2. I like a B minus. The plot was just too hard for me to wrap my head around. I like the idea of having ghosts and people passing, and then their inability to cross over kind of like trying to explain how ghosts could come to be, but none of it was cohesive in a way that I could understand. I couldn't understand why people couldn't cross over. I couldn't understand the point of the radio station. I know Gilbert Gottfried talks about, hey, you know, you missed the crossover point. Therefore, you need this radio station. I have no idea what the crossover point is, why they just wouldn't cross over right away. It's just completely disheveled. I have no idea about that. And then I agree with the ending where, again, it's very, very clean. It's just very clean where I felt Gilbert Gottfried or Chris definitely could have had some kind of negative ramifications for what happened. Although it proves that Ryan Gosling's prank was proper in the end. So he he's truly the hero here. But yeah, Gilbert to me, he really, he is the shining star here. Whether or not I agree with the comedic elements of him in the scenes he's in, when it should be scary, he does a great job in whatever he does, including being scary. So he's also very scary with his smiles and his smirks. When he needs to turn it on, he does. So he does a very good job throughout. And Brian Gosling's performance to me was good just because I, you know, I had the nostalgia with half Nelson. So I kind of went on a little tangent there. But Gilbert really stood out to me. But again, the the plot I could not understand. A lot of what was going on throughout the whole thing. So I think I think an eight point two is fair. Story wise, it's a C, low C, but the performance of of Gilbert to me, I I think it's warranted with a B minus.
0: Follow us on Patreon and Instagram at the Nostalgic Millennial Podcast. Our Patreon offers access to weekly posts, the Discord server, and bi-weekly exclusive episodes. Spend time with us there until our next new episode, when we return to the 1990s.